Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 26. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. And he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But... Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. I know. So we're up to chapter 6 of the Gospel of Luke. And it's actually Luke's version of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon of the Mount, it's actually in Matthew chapters 5, 6 and 7. And that sermon is without a doubt the greatest sermon ever preached. It's so good I plagiarise it sometimes. And some of you will remember those times when I've had a busy week and I don't have time to write my own sermon. I've just read the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and Luke's version is somewhat shorter and it is sometimes known as the Sermon on the Plain. And the reason for that is because in Luke, Jesus comes down and he finds a patch of level ground from which to teach. Now, it could be a patch of level ground on the side of the hill or this might actually be a completely different teaching opportunity at a completely different place at a completely different time but it's a time when Jesus shared a similar message. The thing is, it doesn't matter whether it's the same event recorded by two different people or whether it's two different events. Some folk who do not want to believe, what they do is they look for slight differences between the Gospels and then they, they go, see, they're different to each other, so we don't have to believe any of them. But those who really want to hear and receive and act on the teaching of Jesus... Well, we will find wonderful, wonderful teaching in both Matthew and Luke. 
And because there are some slight differences between these two different Gospels, um, we will be challenged in slightly different ways, but never do they conflict with each other. So be encouraged, read, study, and be challenged by Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. And likewise, over the next few weeks, we're going to read, study, and be challenged by Luke chapter 6. Anyway, as Jesus begins this teaching, there's three groups of people listening. There's the disciples, there's the apostles, and there's a lot of other people there. So firstly, there's a large crowd of disciples. Right? These are the ones who would come along to hear Jesus' teaching. But more than that, these are his followers, those who had chosen, hey, the words of this bloke, this is what I want to commit to. And they start following Jesus. And from these disciples, from these followers of Jesus, he appointed 12 of them to be apostles. Now, we don't have apostles today. Within the Christian church, there are those who have apostle-like gifts. But apostles, they're the ones who are sent. And so we might recognise a missionary, for instance, as having an apostle-like gift because they take the gospel to a land where the gospel has never been preached before. They are the sent ones, like the apostles were. But within the early church, the position of of being an apostle was a position of enormous authority. Most of them had walked with Jesus and followed Jesus right throughout the whole of his ministry. Uh, Paul is probably the exception here. Paul describes himself as an abortion of an apostle, as as one untimely born. Uh, And he says that he's the least of the apostles. But all of the apostles encountered the resurrected Jesus. And so every one of the apostles could testify as eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And within the church, the apostles had a very important responsibility. And we can see just how important this was in in the way that Jesus selected them. He prayed all night before he came down and, and chose which ones would be apostles. The apostles were the ones who, after Jesus was raised from the dead, these were the ones who would have the authority to nail down and to define what the gospel is and to to explain what had happened in this thing. And the teaching of the apostles is what we now have recorded in the New Testament. Now, to me, the outstanding thing is that that, that those Jesus selected as his apostles were not at all outstanding. They weren't highly educated. They weren't famous. They weren't wealthy. They were just ordinary, run-of-the-mill blokes. Uh, There was two sets of brothers, and those four were were all fishermen. There was a zealot. Now, what's a zealot? Well, either a freedom fighter or a terrorist, depending on on whether they're on your side or against you. Um, There was a tax collector. There was a father and a son. And Jesus even chose Judas Iscariot, who had become a traitor. And that's the thing. When the Lord calls people to follow him, he calls everyone to follow. And when he calls followers into leadership, 
and into specific ministries, he doesn't call those who are super gifted. He calls ordinary people and then he gives them gifts. And, and we experience that, don't we? And that's why I love being part of a small church. In a, in a, in a giant church, in an enormous church, um, most people step back and all of the ministry gets done by the professionals. And I know that's what some of us would like to do. If only we had professionals to do this, that and the other. But that's not the way that, that God works. Uh, the thing is, Jesus calls every one of us to be involved in ministry. And guess what? In the church, as Jesus intended it to be, the church is not overflowing with professionals. He calls ordinary men and women to serve him with their whole hearts. And when the Lord calls, what do we do? Oh, no, not me. I can't do it. No, that's not the right answer. When the Lord calls, we say, yes, Lord, I know I can't do it, but I know and I believe that you will strengthen me and help me to do what you have called me to do. And as we step up by his Holy Spirit, God does his work through us. And isn't that wonderful? For me, that's the most satisfying thing because when the Lord calls me to do something, I can't do that. And then God does his work. To see God at work through us, that's what gives us joy. That's what gives us excitement. All right, so, so there's disciples, those who are following Jesus. There are apostles, those who he's called to leadership in what will become a very specific function. And the third group, was a great number of people from all over the place and these folk are almost like spectators, right? So they're there for the spectacle. They're there for the healings. Some were, tr were troubled by, by um, evil spirits and Jesus would cure these too. And all of the crowd wanted to touch Jesus because he had the power to heal and Jesus did heal. We're told here that he healed every one of them even though they didn't have an actual relationship with Jesus. They were there, they wanted to reach out and touch him, they wanted to be healed, but they're not followers. They're not disciples. They're what I would call spectators. And within the church today, this is what we continue to see. There are some who are committed followers of Jesus. There are some who are active in leadership, and there are some who are spectators that come along for a bit of a look. Which one are you? Are you a committed follower of Jesus or are you merely a spectator? And if you are a committed follower of Jesus, is Jesus calling you to step up and serve him at a deeper level, at a level that you have never thought that you could achieve, but you know that God's calling you to do it? Now, for some of us, that's probably be, going to be enough for us to think on out of, out of this whole message. Um, but as we get into this, we're, we're going to see that there's a very good reason to go beyond being a spectator and to become a follower of Jesus. Anyway, um, there's healings happening. Luke says very little about the healings apart from the fact that they happen. 
Because what is most important and what Luke wants us to focus on is what Jesus taught. And Jesus began with, with what we call the Beatitudes, or as Billy Graham, I understand, referred to them, the beautiful attitudes. Now, as we read this, things sort of seem a bit back to front. And that's the way it is with, with the gospel. When Paul and Silas preached the good news of Jesus in Thessalonica, the people were responding to the gospel. And the Jews were a bit jealous of this, and, and so they stirred up a rabble. And then they brought them to the authorities and they said, these men, they've turned the world upside down and now they've come to our city and they're doing the same thing. And you know what? They're absolutely right. The gospel turns everything upside down on its head. From the world's perspective, blessings and woes are inverted. But of course, from God's perspective, everything's getting turned the right way up. And the reasons for this are the words now and shall be. The world focuses on what we experience now. Disciples of Jesus focus on what shall be. So let's see how that plays out in the Beatitudes. Jesus looks at his disciples, right? He's not looking to the spectators. He's looking to his disciples. And he says, blessed are you. He says that four times. And what does it mean to be blessed? In the Greek, this word blessed, it means, oh, how fortunate it is for you. How fortunate you are. How happy you are. How good it is for you. Blessed. How fortunate you are. You who are poor. Hang on a minute. Aren't the poor the ones who are supposed to be pitied? And many of us might even think of ourselves as being the poor. If so, we have no idea what poverty is. The poor is referring to those who are completely destitute. It's referring to those who have absolutely nothing. They're so poor they have to beg. And Jesus is saying, oh, how fortunate you are. How, you, you people who are living in abject poverty. Why? I'll tell you why. It, it's not because they're poor. It's because he's talking to disciples. It's because he's talking to committed followers of his. You see, it's not poverty itself that is the blessing. The kingdom of God is the blessing. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. We're talking about the joy of those who share in salvation. They're blessed. They're happy because, what, because of what is promised to them. And so Jesus is saying to these people, well, you might be poor now, but you are happy in your poverty because you are looking to the future. You're looking forward to eternity and yours is the kingdom of God. And the same goes for the hungry. Ah, how fortunate you are, how happy you are, how good it is for you who are hungry now. You might have nothing in the cupboard to eat and your children might be crying from hunger. You might be spiritually hungry and craving the word of God. But how good it is to be you. 
because your human need is going to be met by divine salvation. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. The third blessing. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Disciples of Jesus, we have an underlying joy. And so when people we love die, we weep. We mourn our loved ones who have died. When we encounter tragedy, when we fall on hard times, when that which is evil seems to gain the upper hand and we suffer, yes, we will be filled with sorrow. And we do weep. But we will laugh. Why? Because we look beyond this life and, and we hold on to this great hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Yes, we do weep now. But how happy we are through our sorrow because we are sure of the immense joy that we have when Jesus returns. Verse 22. Blessed. How fortunate you are. How happy you are. How good it is for you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Wow. Now, 20 or 30 years ago, um, some of these instances I'm about to share would have been unthinkable. But now, uh, in the eyes of the media particularly, Christians and the Christian church are being more and more depicted as the baddies. Have you noticed that? It's hard not to notice it. Of course, not all Christians are bad, just the ones who still believe the Bible and just the ones who who are still committed to truth and who are willing to stand against evil and against activists and against the weak politicians who are engineering our society to do silly things. And especially for any Christians who are willing to call, to, to still preach the gospel, to preach repentance of sins. Um, it's begun and it's only going to get worse. Christians are hated. Why? because we haven't been convinced by the world's version of morality. Jesus is Lord and God's word is truth and nothing can change that. Christians are being excluded. I think excluded was a word used in the Bible reading there. There's a new word that we have for it that has only been around, well, it's in my head in a few years, cancelled. Christians are now being cancelled. Israel Falal may very well be a good footy player. I wouldn't know because I don't play sport. Is he a good footy player? A few nods to the head. Apparently he's one of the best. But he need not apply. Why? Because he dares to quote the Bible and give some examples of sinners who need to repent. The ACT government just in the last couple of weeks has put into place legislation to take over a hospital in the ACT that the Roman Catholic Church have been running. Why? Most probably because those pesky Christians are committed to saving lives and because they refuse to kill unborn babies 
and refuse to kill old sick people. The Victorian Liberal Party have just expelled Moira Deeming, a Christian woman who was willing to stand up and speak against the whole transgender bandwagon. Apparently, she had the hide to say that men are not women, even if they think they want to be. Um, Andrew Thornburn was cancelled as the CEO of Essendon pretty much within a day of when he was appointed because activists got online and found that he was connected with, with a Christian church who hold godly views on marriage and sexuality. Christians are being excluded. Christians are being cancelled. And we're going to see more and more of this. Christians may be excluded in your workplace. They may be excluded in sporting clubs. They may be excluded from leadership. And Christians are now being reviled. That means disgraced, shamed, abused, mocked. Oh, you're one of those Christians who believe this. They'll usually call you some kind of extreme Christian. And they spurn your name as evil, that they will despise us, they will call us evil. Why? On account of the Son of Man. Now, now who'd have thought that Christians would be the targets and that Christians would be the ones who are being accused of being hateful? Um, hate crime is a new one which has come up in the last, well, the last few years for me. Maybe it's been around longer, I don't know. Um, but in many ways, for a Christian to preach repentance from sin is now officially a hate crime. And I've been accused of it by people. But you know what? Blessed. How fortunate you are. How happy you are. How good it is to be you when people hate you and when people exclude you. And when people revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. The, the godless have always had it in for the godly. This is not a completely new thing. The godly have often suffered throughout history. And the godly will suffer today, but that's okay. In fact, it's more than okay. We don't jump up and down and go, stop abusing me. We rejoice. We dance for joy because there's a heavenly rewarded for committed followers of Jesus who continue to walk the road that Jesus always told us was going to be unpopular. And we continue to proclaim the gospel because although some will hate us for doing that, and, and call us hateful for giving the message of forgiveness through repentance of sins. Some others are going to listen to the gospel. Some others, the Holy Spirit is going to do an amazing work in their life and they too will become followers of Jesus. And they too will then become a people who dance for joy because of the reward that is in heaven waiting for them. You see, when the prophets of old brought the word of God to the nation of Israel, they were hated. They were despised, they were mocked, they were abused, they were ridiculed. They were rejected, hated, ignored. But the reward of God is for the faithful. Righto. So at this point, Jesus turns from blessing to woe. 
and he gives four woes. Now, a woe is an expression of grief. It's an expression of despair. It can be an expression of sympathetic sorrow. Oh, I'm so sorry for you because of the state you're in. And in the context it's being used here, it is pity for those who stand under divine judgment. So, is the woe for unbelievers or for disciples? And as you think about this, I want you to stop thinking about what your theology tells you and have a look at what the Bible tells you. Is this woe for unbelievers or for disciples? Well, it's definitely for unbelievers. But the way it's written, Jesus is continuing to address who? His disciples. And so for disciples of Jesus, these woes function as a warning. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and to not turn to things of the world. The first woe is for the rich. Oh, you're rich. I'm sorry to hear that. That's no good. For you've received your consolation. You see, Jesus is speaking to people who are in grave spiritual danger. The rich can only remain rich if they're using their wealth to purchase their own comfort or to purchase their own security rather than meeting the needs of the poor. And often the rich find so much satisfaction in their own wealth that, that they have no need to secure for themselves treasure in heaven. What would Jesus say to the prosperity preachers of today? Their message is God, God wants to bless you. God wants to, to make you rich. That is an outright lie. What does Jesus say? Whoa, you who are rich. Oh, I'm so sorry for you who are rich. For you've received your consolation. You've had your good things. It'll be about a year until we get there at the rate we're working through this gospel, but we will eventually get to Luke chapter 18, God willing. Although Jesus might come back before then, I'll be happy with that too. But in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a rich man how to gather up treasure in heaven. So what you've got, distribute it to the poor. Second woe, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. You've got plenty to eat. Actually, you're really well fed. You're overfed. Oh, how unfortunate for you. Uh, now, you might be surprised by this, but Jesus is talking to me here. Um, I obviously eat more than I need. Um, I've been blessed with a wife who's a really good cook. Uh, and if you know my parents, you'll, you'll know that I've been blessed with the genetics that means I can eat a lettuce, lettuce leaf and turn it into a kilo of fat. Um, if, I was, if I was beef, you'd be breeding from me. Um, but that's not an excuse. 
I obviously eat too much. The woe is to have plenty of food, gobble it all up, and not be moved to help those who have nothing to eat. That's what the woe is about. When Jesus spoke these blessings and these woes, it it wasn't entirely a new kind of teaching. The Lord had already spoken similar words earlier on through the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 65 of Isaiah, God pronounces a blessing for his people who seek him. And he says, But you who forsake Yahweh, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword. And all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Right? This is an image of judgment. Why are they being judged? It goes on. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Why were they hungry? Because they rejected God. They rejected God. They heard his words, but rejected his words. They didn't didn't obey them. And we're going to find this towards the end of this Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. We have the story of the um, two builders. One built his house on the rock, the other built his house on the sand. Now, do you know the point of that parable? The one who built his house upon the rock heard the words of God, heard the words of Jesus and did them. The one who built his house on the sand, he also heard the words of Jesus but did not do them. So in Isaiah, why were they hungry? Because they rejected God and did evil, talking about in the future. Then he says, Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you'll be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. And then he talks about how those who forsake God will be judged, but how the servants of God will be given a new name. Can you think in the New Testament of a place where the servants of God are given a new name? In the book of Revelation, as Jesus returns. And that's exactly what this is about. Because it then goes on in verse 17... For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and a people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. This is in Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And as we look back to the Old Testament in Isaiah, we realise what this woe is about. It's about the day of judgment. 
It's about those who reject the Lord. It's about those who reject the ways of the Lord. And the blessing is for those who follow Jesus. It's for his disciples. The blessing is for those who listen to Jesus. The blessing is for those who obey the words of Jesus, like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. And disciples of Jesus who are able give food to those who have nothing to eat. The third woe. You laugh now. Oh, I'm so sorry for you. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. While the godless have their fun now, while they they mock and ridicule Christians and the way of Jesus, when Jesus returns, I think the smirk's going to be wiped from their face. There won't be any mocking on that day. I think it'll be more like, oh no, what have we done? And the fourth way, you're really popular. You don't put anybody offside. Oh, I'm so sorry. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. There is, as Christians, there's a good reason to be well thought of and there's a bad reason to be well thought of. The right reason to be well thought of as Christians is is because we're people of honesty, to be a people of integrity, to be a people of their word, who what they say is always the truth and you can trust them. And disciples of Jesus, we should be well thought of like that. Agreed? Yeah? The bad way to be well thought of is what Jesus is getting at here in the way that the false prophets are. Preachers who will never offend because they tell sinners exactly what they want to hear. Do you know how to tell a false teacher today? A false teacher will tell their listeners exactly what they want to hear. A false teacher will will adjust the teaching to make it more palatable, to make it less offensive. A false teacher will will either remove truth or just water it down a bit or actually more commonly, we'll just avoid that topic altogether. That's the sort of thing that's going to divide us. That'll ruffle a few feathers. We'd actually don't need to talk about that. We'll talk about light and love instead. Now, I can assure you a false teacher will not be teaching from the Beatitudes, at least not in the way that Jesus gave them. And They may look at at a few of the blessings and go, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. But you're not going to hear many of the woes. You see, even the temptation for me today as a preacher has been to rob these words of the offence that Jesus intends them to cause. You know, some people say, oh, you Christians, why are you so offensive? Jesus was never offensive. Really? Really? What then? Why was he crucified? What was Jesus saying? Are you rich? Well, get offended. Because wealth for yourself is not my way. You're living for today instead of living for eternity. You're not building up treasure in heaven. 
And if we go home today, and if we have not been offended, then we have not heard the word of God. If we have not been challenged to share what we have and to share generously with those who are genuinely in need, then our hearts are so hard. Oh, how unfortunate. We've had our good times. Michael, are you eating more than you need? Well, get offended. Because getting fat while others starve is not my way. And if I go home today without being offended, and if I have not been challenged to give food to the starving, oh, how unfortunate it is for me. I'll be hungry. Do you laugh at and mock the ways of Jesus? Well, get offended, because when Jesus returns, the smile is going to be wiped from your face. Do you water down the word of God so that you don't offend anyone? Or get offended because Jesus has just exposed how false and how faithless you are. Isaiah foretold that Jesus would be like a stone that makes us stumble, a rock that trips us up and makes us fall. He's talking about how Jesus would be this rock of, of offence, the scandalon that would make us fall. And you see, the Beatitudes, they're lovely, aren't they? But part of the Beatitudes are the woes. And, the, and they're the inverse of the Beatitudes. And these are the words of Jesus that truly give offence. What's the point? And even at this point, as I'm summing up, I'm still torn because I've still got that opportunity to give you a summary that's going to remove the offence and make you all go, ah. I must not do that. The point, be offended. These are words of judgment for unbelievers. But they're also words of warning for disciples of Jesus. If all we have in, and if all we pursue is health, wealth, friends, happiness, that is very sad because we've missed the whole point. Follow Jesus, live for Jesus, and live not for this world and not for worldly blessings. In fact, give up worldly blessings and have treasure in heaven. Has anyone not been challenged today? Has anyone not been offended today? But have you not also been encouraged? You see, for disciples of Jesus, these words are not really meant to offend us that much. For disciples of Jesus, they should be seen as, as an enormous encouragement. Because when we do suffer for Jesus, when we are excluded, when we are cancelled, when we do miss out, we're encouraged. Because that's evidence that we are living with an eternal perspective. That's what the world rebels against. 
So be offended, but just, just don't stay offended. By his Holy Spirit, be transformed. Focus on eternity. Love God. Love others. Hold on to the truth. And be encouraged, your reward is in the kingdom of God. And if you're still sitting here thinking, you know, I don't think that that's really what Jesus was getting at. I want you to go home and read the rest of the sermon, which we're going to be covering over the next few weeks. Hold, hold the Beatitudes, hold the blessings and the woes in the context of the teaching of Jesus that follows and still see if you're not ready to make some major changes in your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, your words cut deep. They cut so deep to our heart and soul and spirit. And Lord, as we read these blessings and as we read these woes, we are reminded of, of just how much we continue to be drawn to worldly stuff. And we realise how ungodly some of our habits are, some of our beliefs, even some of the teachings that we love to hear that appeal to our fleshly nature. Oh, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, renew us, transform us to be a people of, of such strong faith that when we are hated, when we are excluded, when we are spurned for your sake, that we would rejoice that we'd leap for joy because our hearts are set on eternity. We know that they're set on eternity, otherwise the world would not hate us so. And help us, as we live day by day, to be your faithful disciples, to continue to proclaim your goodness and the gospel of salvation, that gospel that we've been blessed with, that Jesus died to save us from our sins and that by faith you forgive us of our sins. And we thank you, Lord, that you don't want to leave us as we were. You want to transform us into your disciples who don't just follow you in belief but follow you in practice, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.